Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about creating a good solo game, creating that really good solo experience, you know, uh, the solo gamers, I know you're out there. You've been sending me emails. You've been asking about a, a podcast episode about this. You know, hey, we want to hear how to design a solo game. So I'm talking to Herman Lutman, the designer of Dawn of the Zeds, this really cool solo game about killing zombies, surviving the zombie apocalypse. And so I'm really excited to talk to you, Herman. Really appreciate you being on the show. Welcome. Thank you, Gabe. It's great to be here. Hello to all the listeners. Yeah, and so, all right, I was telling Herman before the show, you know, when I started thinking about solo experiences, the first game I thought about was Dawn of the Zeds. It was one that, that I had researched for my own purposes, and I was working on a zombie game a while back, and, and his is a pretty interesting one, really cool one with some interesting design uh, mechanics and whatnot. And so, Herman, I'm really excited to hear about your game and how, how you create the solo experience, but tell me your bio. Like, who are you? What do you do? You know, how do you get into game design? That kind of thing. Okay, well, it's good. Thank you very much. Um... I'm actually relatively new to this. I think my first design was in 2010, 11. I'm, I'm trying to remember now. But uh, all my original work was with uh, Victory Point Games, VPG. Uh, Dawn of the Zed, strangely enough, was the first game that I submitted for publication, and it got rejected the first <laughs> the first time I, I, uh, I submitted it to Alan Emmerich. Uh, it was a little bit too wargamey. I come from a very strong wargame background. So uh, in the meantime, I had... I had another idea for a game that him and I talked about. About uh, uh, it was called Gettysburg: The Wheatfield, which was a miniatures game converted to a board game. And again, that that one I, I went right away with because I had a miniatures background, so it fed right into to all that. And then I resubmitted Dawn of the Zeds after Gettysburg: The Wheatfield was a was a success. And uh, yeah, then it, then it then it took off. And then uh, you're probably going to ask me what inspired me about. You know, to do Dawn of the Zeds in particular. Um, well, I'll tell you about that later. But yeah, we'll get into stuff, that in a minute. Yeah, tell me more yeah, about we'll you get first. Into all that later. Um, in the meantime, though, I had done. Uh, I did another solo game called In Magnificent Style, which was uh, a solitaire game on Pickett's Charge, uh, and that was quite successful. So I, I did a lot of uh, a lot of solo work. I did a Spoiled Victory with Paul Fish about Dunkirk. That was a solitaire game. Lately, I've done Invaders from Dimension X for a tiny battle game, which was a solitaire, uh, chaotic science fiction game, Space Vermin from Beyond, uh, from Beyond with Fred Manzo. Uh, and I got a couple more coming out. Yeah, so, so tell me how you became a designer. Like, what brought you into the hobby? Well, I was a miniatures gamer right from the get-go. Uh, naval miniatures and then uh, Napoleonic and, and Civil War miniatures. So I really got into the hobby that way. And I started dabbling with board game, war games at, uh, I don't know when, but um, I became, a, I actually appreciated more of the, the smaller, quicker designs. And that got me interested in what Victory Point Games was doing at the time, which were more accessible folio, smaller foot, footprint games. And uh, as I became friends with uh, Alan Emmerich, the owner of Victory Point Games, uh, he started throwing ideas back at me as far as, uh, you know, well, what, what, what would you like to design? And we talked about the System 7 Napoleonic system from way back when that uh, the GDW did. And he wanted to do something like that. 
so that started me working on Gettysburg, the wheat field, which was, uh, which was based on a miniature set of rules I wrote called Tattered Flags way back in the day. And uh, that game was uh, thankfully very successful. And, and, and that started me off on the whole, the whole game design, <laughs> the whole game design thing. Okay, so you started off in the miniature space, and then that led to some relationships, and you know, and that kind of brought you into the more board game space. Right. Exactly. Gotcha. Well, cool, man. You know, every everybody I talk to is kind of the similar thing. It's like this thing led to relationships, which led to my opportunity to design or to be part of a, a publishing company or do do something along those lines. And so, you know, anybody listening, I think that just kind of keeps coming up. You want to be in this industry, get involved somewhere somehow. And build relationships, build a network, and because it's going to lead to more, um, hopefully down the road. Right, and there are publishers. There are publishers out there who, uh, like right now, Tiny Battle, uh, which is being run by Mark Walker and some other companies. They they look for new designers and to give you an opportunity to get your to get your feet wet. Um, and the only thing I can suggest is uh, don't worry about how much money you're going to make with your first design. The main goal is to get it published, you know, to, to complete it and get it published. And, you know, whatever whatever commission fee you make from it, that's great. That's gravy. You know, you have to invest a lot of time and effort and, you know, you sacrifice a little bit on the commission and to get your games published and get them known. And you you, you, you develop a, a clientele and a fan base and then you can, you know, then you can worry about asking for bigger bucks. But the main thing is to get published. It's it's. It's very similar, I, I assume, to, to you know writing your first novel and that kind of thing. Yeah, the biggest thing is get your foot in the door, right? Right. You know, absolutely. Build a brand. You know, this you're playing the long game. Hopefully, you're not. Hopefully, not playing the flash in the pan game. Hopefully, you're playing the designer uh, long game to where you know you release a game, people like it. You build up a small fan base. You release another game. Mm-hmm. You build up some more fans, and then you know down the road, by the time you've released you know, I don't know how many games, three, four, five down the road, then you've got this really good, solid fan base that like your games, they like your style, you know, they, they, they get behind you and they buy your stuff. Same thing in music. If you're a band, you know, you go out and you play in the bar for 20 bucks and, 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 you know, you build up some fans and then you play a bigger show and a bigger show and then you cut an album or whatever it is. And so it's the same thing with any creative venture, writing a book. It's the same way, you know, a lot of people, they say, oh, man, this overnight success, this person with this book that just sold a million copies. It's like, yeah, but how many books did they write that nobody published? How many books did they write that only a few people read? How many books did they write that then, you know, led to 10 years later them being right. a quote-unquote overnight success? And so, yeah, I think that's a great point. Just just make stuff, finish stuff, and then get it out there as quickly as you can. And so, Right. Actually, the analogy of a band is perfect Yeah, because – you know, you'll go out to a local bar, you know, try out your new so- new songs and see how the new album works. I mean, you know, all sorts of great bands still do that. And and to this day, I still I've been I've been designing since I think 2010 or 2011. And, you know, I got a pretty good catalog of, of systems and all that. But I will still go to a, a company like Tiny Battle Publishing, uh, which is run by Mark Walker. And I'll just throw out a design that I just want to experiment with to see if it'll take. You know, just to just to try it out and and and, and experiment and do all sorts of different kind of weird things. So when I designed Invaders from Dimension X, that was a total chaos game that I just wanted to do for fun. And thankfully, it, you know, it, it, it became a hit for Tiny Battle. So you, you just got to keep, you know, you throw out your ideas, you try things out. Some work, some don't work. But, you know, and you don't worry about what the commission's going to be or, or anything like that. You're doing it for, you know, a creative venture. 
Yeah, definitely. All right, so tell me about Dawn of the Zeds. You know, where'd you get the idea? How did that game come about? All that good stuff. All right, well, <laughs> Dawn of the Zeds was born... Now, to, to, just to tell you a dirty little secret, I'm not a particularly crazy zombie fan or anything like uh-huh. that. I mean, I, I was... Like everybody else, you know, you appreciate the classics, 28 Days Later and, and Night of the Living Dead and all that kind of stuff. But I was playing uh, Zulus on the Ramparts by Victory Point Games, which is was one of their States of Siege entries. And I was playing it, and I'm going, oh, my God, this is this is like a zombie apocalypse, you know, siege game. How come somebody must have thought of this? So when I contacted Alan Emmerich and I said, you know, I just played Zulus on the Ramparts, great game, a lot of fun, but... You know, has anybody done a, a zombie version of this? I mean, it's perfect for this kind of th- uh, theme. And I just assumed that he would tell me, oh, yeah, we've got three or four submissions like that. And he hadn't had any. Yeah. And I said, well, look, I, look, zombies sell. And, and this 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 uh, uh, mechanic, the States of Siege uh, uh, um, system is perfect for this kind of thing. So that that just really started it all off. And um uh, the first, the first effort I I did at it was was way too wargamey, you know. According to Alan, I had to redesign it more to a, a more general audience. So the second effort uh, actually worked out really well. Uh, I, my first edition of of Dawn of the Zed, still my favorite, I guess, because it was my, you know, I guess it's because it was my first effort. But it was always the simplest, the most basic, and the most straightforward version of the game. Yeah. So so what changed between that first effort that was kind of wargamey to the next version? It's hard to describe, but when you when you wargaming, you think there's only one solution to every to every situation. <laughs> yeah. So conflict always had to be, you know, fire combat or melee combat, and had to have a CRT and, and all that. And then when you when you get away from that, when you when you open your mind a little bit and say, well, what other solutions are there to these conflicts? Then you realize, and and then the other thing was, I realized that. A zombie apocalypse game, that, that kind of theme has to be more character-oriented. It has to be story-oriented. Yeah. And that was the real that was the real click-over for me was when I realized, well, wait a minute now. I'm not really – I'm not doing a war game. I'm not doing a conflict game. I'm doing a story game. I'm, I'm doing an adventure. I'm doing a movie. So that automatically made me think of other mechanics to, to, to move the story along. And – that warped into the whole idea of, hey, look, nobody cares. Well, I shouldn't say nobody cares, but I want to design a game that nobody cares if they win or lose. Right. And and that worked because my first, well, the first people that wrote to me were going like, oh my god, I got my butt kicked, I got destroyed, and I had a blast. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and then you then you know you're onto something, and. Um, so it was more of the, the the storytelling aspect, I guess, than the conflict aspect that really kicked it over for me. Yeah, so let's talk about some of those storytelling mechanics and the way you, you tell the story through the game. Uh, just kind of talk to me about the game. How does it play? Well, it, it, like I said, it's based on States of Siege. Now, the States of Siege system has many, many versions, uh, historical and otherwise. And the basic idea is you have multiple tracks of oncoming enemies and you are i guess i would call it a tower defense type of game i guess yeah. and if if any of the enemies get 
to the center of the board, you automatically lose. So your your job is to keep these various enemies away from you. And there, and there are many, many, many variations of the state to see in various levels of complexity. So I just took that idea and said, all right, well, you know, each of these tracks is going to have a different characteristic, you know, the highway track and the forest track and the mountain track. And the zombies are going to come pouring down. And, you know, you have to deploy your various citizens and heroes to try to delay and, and kill these zombies before they hit the center. So, the, the, I mean, the main component are the are the event cards and the event cards are the heart and soul of this thing where this is where you get the, the you know, every movie plot line and every incident that can occur in a zombie movie or a zombie novel are built into these cards so that you experience all this stuff as you're flipping these cards. You have to live this out. And I think, I think in a lot of ways I was, I was influenced. I think I had just read World War Z at the time. Okay. So that really kind of got me into that whole mode of events and characters and, and stories. And, and I think in a lot of ways too, the miniatures background you know, there's something I, I don't know if you've ever played real miniatures before, if any of your listeners have played miniatures before. But th there's an extra dimension when you play miniatures. There's yes, there's the third dimension, meaning, you know, you've got these guys standing here with flags sticking up and, and beautiful uniforms. But there's also the fourth dimension is the kind of narrative that you built into your miniatures, you know, units that you command over time and have painted actually develop their own characteristics and mm -hmm. own personalities. And when we're done with a miniatures game, you don't talk so much about winning and losing. You talk about the stories of how a certain regiment held out against the cavalry charge or what a wonderful assault that was on that, you know, on the bull's breastworks. And so that fourth dimension kind of worked its way into Dawn of the Zeds. And I think that's what kind of sets it apart is you have that whole, I always wanted guys to, when they get done playing Zeds to call up their friend and say, Oh my God, I just, I guess got my butt kicked. I got destroyed, but boy, you should have seen, uh, you know, Sheriff Hunt at the bridge as he held off the zombie horde after, you know, you know, they just tell a story about the game and it's not so, they don't care about winning and losing. It was just about being in an adventure and in a movie. Yeah, that's a great point, and that's that's a great way to approach a game. Is is this idea? I'm going to create an experience. I'm going to tell a story, you know. And it has mechanics. It has different things that happen, but everything points towards this bigger narrative thing. I think people really relate to that. But why make it a solo experience? So so what draws you to that solo experience? Because you could have made this a multiplayer game. I mean, there's tons of multiplayer zombie games out there, but why why were you drawn more to the solo experience? Well, I guess because I got influenced to do the game based on a solo game engine, which was States of Siege. Okay, so the system, I mean, you really just loved that system and said, I need to make, there needs to be a zombie game in this system, and so the system really kind of determined yeah, that route. Yeah, yeah. Right. It was a pairing of a game I was enjoying, and it just made so much more sense to me that the player, especially in a, in a zombie setting, like a zombie apocalypse setting, that you would feel more alone, I guess. You yeah. know, the lone warrior, you know, defending, defending the city against this oncoming horde. I guess it's kind of that... It just fit that theme a little bit more of like it's just me. Nobody else is here to help me, yeah. you know. And I'm alone, and I'm and I'm and I'm trying to trying to save everybody, and it's up to me. So that whole hero aspect of I guess of a lot of these zombie movies and all that. But it was all again, it, you know, it, it was the system as well. 
And and to a certain extent, it was also like the marketing side too, because we were like, how many solitaire? I mean, I don't know how many solitaire zombie games there were at the time, but there weren't. There's not a lot of solitaire-specific designs. So as a designer, you know, you, you know, you want to. I'm, at least as far as I'm concerned, I try to create something different every time I do a game. I, I don't try to uh, mirror other designs or do the the rote stuff. I try to create something new every time. And uh, I, I figured, well, a solitaire application of of the zombie thing not only fits really well, but you know, there's a market for it. Yeah. Most of the zombie games out there were, were those kind of multiplayer co-op-y type things. And this was a different type of approach. Yeah, that's a great point. Let's talk about the general idea. So, you know, you've, you've made obviously more than just this game. So in general, why why are you drawn to the solo experience? In a lot of ways, it's it's a greater challenge for me as a designer to do that. You know, personally, it's very satisfying when you get it right. But to a certain extent, too, it's... It's a great challenge. You're almost creating uh, a living, breathing creature when you create this AI. You know, the key is, for me anyway, you know, when you create a solitaire game, the the AI, the game you're playing, the game you're playing against, has to function on its own. I, I try to go under the principle that you, as the player, have to be have as little to do with running the AI as possible. In other words, I don't want to spend any of my time uh, deciding for the game what to do. I don't want any decisions to be made. I want to worry about what I have to do. And the AI, the, the enemy, the zombies, the aliens, whatever it is you're fighting, when it's their turn to do something, the game system should tell you exactly what to do with those guys. Yeah. There shouldn't be any sitting there going, Oh, well, I'll take the shortest route, or I have to do this, or I should take the most advantageous attack. No, no, no. I don't want to think about what the other guy is going to do. It should, the system should just tell me what to do. Right. So in, in that sense, it's especially challenging for me as a designer to say, all right, well, I have to create the system that is going to be really accessible, really easy for the player to use, and still be challenging. And uh, it, it's hard to do, but it, like I said, it's very satisfying when you can get it done. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. It's it's such a design constraint, you know, to create create this system that is self-run, you know, because, I mean, in a normal game, if, if I'm playing against you, well, I, I play my side of the board and then you play your side of the board, but I don't have right. to, you know, but in this scenario, I'm playing technically both sides of the board. And so to keep, you know, from having too much information from the, to keep the information from being overwhelming, all those things, it's a really mm-hmm. good challenge as a designer to figure out that system. Right. You, you don't want it to be just a two-player game where you, as the player, play both sides. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's, it really is a different style of designing in the sense that how you, ha- how you have to approach it. Now, of course, there's a downside. I mean, there's not a great market. Well, it's getting better, but you know, a lot of, a lot of guys don't want to have anything to do with solitaire-specific yeah. games because they don't think it's challenging enough or they think there's, there's other problems with it. So, I mean, you know, from a marketing point of view, sometimes some guys won't even go anywhere near a solitaire game. I'm, I'm not exactly sure why I always argue, I always argue with them. I say, well, you got to try it. You know, you got to try it. And I mean, there's some bad, admittedly, there's some bad solitaire games out there where, you know, the, the designers, are, you know, have, you know, get very lazy and, and, you know, you're just doing random stuff that has nothing to do with anything. And you don't feel like you're really playing against anything. And that's the key. You got to, you got to, you got to build enough. 
character in the AI to, to make it at least feel like it's a challenge to yours, at least reacting logically, you, you know what I mean? Not yeah. totally randomly. Right. Another thing is I feel like a lot of, not a lot, but there are some solitaire games out there that feel more like an activity than a game. You right. know, it just seems like this is something to do with my time as opposed mm-hmm. to a game to play and I just happen to be by myself. So I think that's also something to be aware of is that you create a game and not just right. a time waster or an activity. Exactly. And, you know, if you're doing a historical solitaire game, you, you have to make sure that the AI, um, you know, like, for example, for the Dunkirk game. So you're playing as the allied player. All right. And you're trying to save your men off the beaches of Dunkirk. But the Germans come in based on a card system, an event system that you flip. In it. And the key is, yes, those cards are random as far as when they're, but they have to be weighted. Like the, the, the actions that the Germans are going to do have to feel like generally what the Germans would have done during the Dunkirk campaign. It's not going to be exactly a, uh, a scripted right. uh, version of what happened, but it's going to be a, a realistic simulation of what would have tended to happen. So it, it's a really fine balance between, you know, being just totally, oh, well, whatever, you know, or a scripted type of thing. So, you know, the tendency might be that the offensive would come from one side, but it's not always going to come from one side. So it, it is a it is a tough balancing act for me. Like I said, it, it's a it's a challenge to do it and do it right. And when people when you get it right, people really do appreciate it. And that, and, and that is very rewarding. Yeah, and then that gets into what you're just saying is the difference between a game and a simulation. You could create a simulation that went step for step for this battle, you know, historical battle. That, you know, the cavalry runs in the exact same time that they did in history, and these guys fire at the same time and all that. But then you create a game that's, again, it's scripted, and so it it is solvable. You know what I mean? It's, it's just a puzzle, and you fit in the right pieces, and you win. Right. As opposed to having a game where you're having to actually be challenged and figure out Okay. Oh, that happened now. Oh man, I was hoping that would happen later, but now I got to figure out this new problem. I got to make these different decisions and all that. So that's another thing to think about with creating solo uh, historical games. Absolutely, and there and there are people even with non-historical games who tell you that your simulation is unrealistic. <laughs> <laughs> you know how many people have written to me about what kind of zombies are in Dawn of the Dead? Well, are those are those George Romero zombies? Are those Twenty Eight Day Later zombies? Or are those you know, World War Z zombies or, you know, what kind of zombies, you know, they wouldn't do that. Uh-huh. Or, <laughs> and even like the game, a uh, game like Invaders from Dimension X, which is uh, features an alien race that does totally random things. There's still an internal logic to what they do. So even in a, in a, in a almost pure chaotic manner, because they come from another dimension, so we can't understand what they do. They still have an internal logic into what they do. Yeah even though you don't know what it is they're going to do next. But over the course of the entire game, they have a certain logic that occurs. So even like in a science fiction game, you know, basic physics and, and, and well, even the physics can be off as long as the physics are off consistently. Yeah. <laughs> so as long as the storyline all ties in. I guess that's what the point I'm trying to make. There still has to be a consistent thread of a storyline. Yeah, exactly. And create a system that kind of puts all that stuff together. So, you know, maybe it's not just scripted word for word, but there's still a system that kind of keeps it making sense, like you were talking about with the Germans. So it, it makes sense. These things happen mm-hmm. in the in these very, uh, not necessarily simple, but in these in these constraints so that the player can actually play a game as opposed to just trying to, to figure out a bunch of random stuff that's happening. Right. Yeah. 
Right, and there's there's other ways to approach solo designing. For example, in Magnificent Style and in my upcoming Point the Hot games, I've taken a solo game and Pickett's Charge. Now, how many games do you know, do you know there are of Pickett's Charge? Well, who would want a game Pickett's Charge? It's insane, right? right. It's a, it's a you know, nearly suicidal attack. So the way you approach that is I say, all right, well, you're the Rebels, and we're going to do a push-your-luck system, which very conveniently has an, has an interesting mechanic in it that puts you in a suicidal, oh, well, I don't want to say suicidal, but a very difficult situation. And the way you model that with the constant firepower, instead of having, you know, die rolls for constant fire coming in, each separate thing. No, it's a, it's just a general wall of resistance. And the way you model that is with a push your luck system where you're, you're pushing you guys, and you're pushing guys, how far can I push them before I stop them and regroup? And then you've got a whole new you know, a whole new theme for a solo game. So there's, there's all sorts of different ways you can do solitaire games in different thematic, uh, you know, parameters that 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 that'll work. And again, you know, it has to be somewhat realistic as far as what you're facing, but there has to be this slight chance of winning. Yeah. Um, even like with Dawn, you know, with Dawn of the Zeds, the thing I that 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 works is that it's really hard to win the game, and that's another key to solitaire games. It has to be really hard to win. If you play a solitaire game the first time and you you kick its ass the first time, you you're probably going to take the game and put it on the shelf. Right. Just like with it, I think it has a lot to, a lot to do with the same kind of video game mentality. Where you know if I'm playing a video game and I win all these different levels right away, I'm like ah, it's not challenge. No, I want to get my butt kicked the first scenario, so I go back. You have to you have to give the player enough hope that like oh well if I had just done this or if I'd taken this path or if I'd used this tactic or if I'd been a little luckier I would have won that and the, they want to go right back and play it again and that's you know that's the Zeds is like that Zeds Zeds will kick your butt but you know you look at it and go well wait a minute now if you know if he had held out at that nuclear plant just one more turn I could have done that and you want to go back right away and. That's really important in a solitaire game. You don't want to you don't want to win a solitaire game right away. Yeah, it's a great point. It's so distinctly different than a multiplayer game, even a multiplayer co-op. You know, where like Pandemic. I, I think I won the first game I ever played in Pandemic. Now there were other people mm-hmm. there that were playing that had played before and all that. But I remember it was so funny because my friends had told me, "Oh yeah, man, this game's really hard." And this was years and years ago, right? They said, "Oh, this mm-hmm. game's super hard to to beat." And then we beat it the first time I ever played, and I remember thinking, "I don't know." Is that was that hard? You know, like that? That was, I don't, you know, yeah. and I wasn't super enthused to play it again until later when I was I was showing it. Somebody, a friend of mine, wanted to play. He'd never played it, and so but we busted it out. And I was the only one that had played it, and we got our butts handed to us. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, it is actually kind of hard sometimes, you know. And so, right, right, with a solitaire game, you you won't have that. It's it needs to be hard right out of the box. And I mean, people are looking for a challenge. They're looking for something that's gonna that's going to push them in different directions and, and push them to have to learn and try new things and make different decisions. And then right. like you say, go back and try something else. Oh, okay. I lost, right. but I can go back and see why I lost. I think that's another thing to, to realize when you're creating these games it's, is it's how, funny. You mentioned it, It's funny. You mentioned pandemic because yeah. I remember playing pandemic the first time. And I think we played it with three other guys and that game, like a lot of co-op games tends if you have an alpha, what do they call it, alpha male personality or alpha, alpha personality gamer. in yeah. it, 
Yeah, you have Alpha Gamer in there. It becomes a solitaire game. <laughs> yeah, because because that person will tell you, well, no, you should do. You got to do this. You got to do that. You got to do this. Yeah, and you should move there, and you should do that, and you're just really doing the moves for him or her. Right. <laughs> and uh, that that is a big problem with a lot of the the co-op games. You got to try to find a way around that. That's another great challenge. You know, who's you, how do you beat that alpha player? Yeah, I, I've got friends that this, they just don't play with that guy. That's their that's their answer. He's like, oh, you're being a jerk. We're not going to play with you. Um, and that's how they've solved that problem. That's but, right. So let's talk about some pros and cons. What are, what are some pros to designing a solitaire game? Well, the cons are this. That's really hard. <laughs> okay, let's start with the cons. So it's a super difficult yeah. process. What else? Yeah, it's a really it's a really tough process. And and again, like I said, I I honestly don't know like just as far as sales numbers and all that kind of thing. But you know what the market is. I I guess it's good because it seems to do that. You know, a, a well done solitaire game does seem to sell well. And I think as the, as the uh, the gaming uh, customer base gets a little bit older, or at least the, the war gamers are getting older. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as you retire, you, 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 you tend to, if you can't find a war gaming group or any kind of gaming group, you tend to play solitaire games more. So I guess in that sense, it depends where you are and what, what you're designing. Uh, but it, 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 it's a, it's a difficult, uh, it's a lot of work to get it right. And you got to get it really right, I guess, to make sales as far as a, as a designer goes. Uh, from the pros, I, like I said to you before, from the pros, it, it is a is a great challenge. It's a real mind bender challenge to do a game solitaire specific that's uh, you know that's that's well done. And uh, I, to me, I find that it keeps me interested in designing. You know, it, it challenges me each time. And I guess that's what that, what more more can you ask for if you're going to do this? I mean, nobody's in nobody's in this to do you know to make money. Yeah. I mean, we're not we're, you know nobody's making a lot of money designing games. Oh well, it might be a couple guys. Yeah, a few a people, handful. <laughs> There's a few people <laughs> making a lot of money. Yeah, but you don't do this. Do you? you do it because you like it and it keeps your brain from you know from becoming too stagnant and uh, and I, and I guess in that sense it's very rewarding just to be able to uh, create something that people appreciate. Yeah, another thing I'm I'm thinking, you just tell me if I'm wrong on the pro side, is it's easier to play test. You don't have to get three, four, five people over to your house to play test your game. You can literally just play test it by yourself and, and see if it that, works or not. That's actually an excellent point um, because I do have a few other large war games, one for GMT coming out and a couple for Revolution, and play testing them is a major, major issue. Yeah, Play, play testing them to the point... You know, you can always play test them, but play testing to the point where you've got everything covered and balancing is perfect and all that. And that is a huge problem. Now, that's not to say that uh, play testing solitaire games is automatic if you just do it by yourself. Mm-hmm. In, in other words, it gets you, I agree with you, it gets you started down the road a little faster because it is solitaire. For example, um, when I'm playtesting, in my initial out-of-the-box playtesting for any solitaire, I always grab uh, usually Fred Manzo as my developer, and we sit together and play co-op and say, well, all right, well, what, what's missing? What's what the... Then I'll play solitaire. Then I'll give it to him to play solitaire. And then we send it to two or three guys totally blind and don't tell them anything about it other than the theme and say, here, you, you guys try it. Yeah. So, um, ge- yes, generally speaking, you don't need to get 
three or four guys together and that have to dedicate multiple months to doing it and various scenarios and multiple play. You know, it's it is a lot easier to play test, but I still do it. I still do it with a lot of people because uh, there's one thing I learned designing games is you can fall into the tunnel vision problem really easily. And if I had to tell any designer any tip, it's don't think you don't need third and fourth party input on your designs. You do. Take it. Believe me, you need it. Because... Even as much as you think you've got a, a rule perfectly explained, you know, f- perfectly exampled, uh, perfectly worked out, somebody will read that same rule, I guarantee it, and interpret it entirely different than the way you did. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and other people are going to play your game differently. That's one thing I love about, about playtesting yep. games with my wife. She, she approaches games very differently than I do. And so on one of my designs, we'll be sitting there playing it and I will be playing it the way it's supposed to be played. You know what I mean? Like the way I imagined it should be played. And then she'll play it from a totally different angle and she'll beat the crap out of me. She'll beat me right. by all these points. It's like, what, what did you, why did you play it that way? You know, I have to go back and like, Oh, okay. And I'll maybe find things that are broken or un- imbalanced or whatever it is. But it's so good to have other people come in there because they're going to see it with totally different eyes. Right. And we actually just had that experience today before uh, we were talking here. We were playtesting Longstreet Attacks, which is uh, a war game I got coming out for Revolution Games. And the two guys who were playtesting it with me, always one guy always took the Union, one guy always took the Confederates, and I had them switch. Yeah. And the first thing they said to me, go, oh, my God, the board looks totally different from this side. <laughs> And it's true. You get you get into this mindset where, you, and you do it you do it unconsciously or subconsciously, yeah. where you, your solutions to problems always, well, not always, but usually follow the same thought paths. Right. You know, so you tend to do the same things, even though you're maybe not even realizing you're doing it, but your interpretation of how to solve a problem is kind of the same each time, and you know the the the, uh, the problems presented to you by each side. Are different so once you switch sides all of a sudden the things that you thought worked on one side don't work on the other side yeah. and it, it changes it, it, it's, it's fascinating it really is fascinating into uh, human nature and how people solve problems and approach uh, you know approach complex decision-making uh, when, when you start actually getting into play testing and, and, and getting people involved in, in working through the game design that uh, how that thought process works. It's, it is amazing. And and, it is something a designer has to really be aware of because you can, you can put out a piece of crap and and you think it's the greatest thing in the world. And the first person that plays it, you know, and, and there is a famous, uh, I I guess it was Dunnigan or somebody, but you know, it doesn't matter how many times you play test your design. When you publish it, you will now have a hundred times more play testers. Who will find? I guarantee you, they will find things. We we did the lamps are going out for Compass Games, a great World War One strategic game by Kirk Ullman, and we played the we played that thing for two three years. It got published. It's out there, and I swear to God, people are asking us questions about situations that occurred that we never dreamed could occur. Yeah, and we're looking at it. What the? How the heck did they get to this? But they're right. We didn't even think of this. It never came up that way. Yeah. So, 
don't ever, you know, you're never going to get it perfect. You, you just got to get to get as many eyeballs as possible on your design because there's just so many different ways that people look at stuff. And, and, and back to your original point, that works for solitaire games, too. Yep. You, you know, you can you as the designer can play your solitaire game 100 times and think it's perfect. And I can hand it to Fred and he'll look at it going zip, zap, zoop. It's broken. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. and you, it's something you never thought of. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Just because it's a solo game and you've played it over and over again yourself, doesn't mean it's it's done. You don't don't skimp out on the playtesting just because it's it's a solo experience. Now, right. now you've mentioned how hard it is to design one of these games, and that's come up already a couple of times. Let's go into why it's so hard. Tell me about some of the challenges that you face designing uh, some of your solo games. Well, I, as I hinted at before, the most challenging thing is the AI and the you know, the, the, op, the opposing side. So, you know, my rule number one, as I told you before, is if you're going to play a solitaire game, don't make the player work yeah. to run the game. Okay. Cause the player wants to sit down and worry about his or her moves, you know, to play the game. And they shouldn't have to be making decisions for the other side as well. They might as well play a two player game. Then. Right. So it, it the, the game's got to be easily accessible. You know, generally a small footprint. I mean, I, I, there's some great large war game, solitaire games out there that are just huge, you know, hundreds of counters, beautifully designed, thick rule book, the whole thing. That's fine for some people. For me, I like my games to be small footprint. You know, I can reach everything. Everything's in front of me, clear. So it's got to be accessible. It's got to be playable. It's got to be malleable, <laughs> whatever you yeah. want to call it. Um, as a matter of fact, I was talking to Randy at Legion about the Dunkirk game, and we were talking about what size the map should be. And we were going, you know, he wanted to make it a little bigger. I said, no, you know, when you're playing solitaire, you don't want to have to reach across the table, you know, and occupy your entire dining room table. You want it in front of you. You can reach everything easily. You know, your girlfriend or wife can't get all ticked off at you because you're taking up the entire room, you know, <laughs> right. that, that kind of So the whole lot, you know, the, 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 the greatest challenge to me is, uh, is to make sure that the game experience is, is smooth and, and easy, accessible. Everything is there. Everything can, no heavy-duty decision-making um, uh, that you have to make for the, for the AI. Um, the other thing is... is uh, is, is balancing, you know, you, you, you gotta, you gotta make sure that the game is, isn't too easy to win. It's gotta be easy to play, but it can't be easy to win. Yeah. You, you always want to come back and say, you know, that was a, I, I want to play it again. It's that, you know, that, that sweetness, you know, that I want more, I want mm -hmm. more. I got to come back and play it. Uh, and I lost and I got to come back. And so part of that is making sure you're balanced correctly. Like I said before, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to win more than, you know, you want to build it so it's like 10% of the time, you know, you can win. And it's a tough, tough thing to do where, you you know, you're bordering on impossible, but just enough to keep you coming back. But, you know, you also want to make it entertaining, which is what I was talking about before about the, uh, you know, we all game for different reasons. I guess I was, I was trying to get to that before. You know, you, you got your competitive people who you go down to the gaming club and they're not happy unless they win, you know, yeah. uh, uh, my brain is bigger than your brain. I, I planned better than you did. I am brilliant. I beat you. You stink. You're stupid. You know, okay, <laughs> fine. Other people game for other reasons. Like we were talking before, 
I get, you know, I have uh, my regular job is an accounting job. So it's kind of, mm, <laughs> it's kind of right. boring in numbers and, you know, a lot of pressure and a lot of work. So when I, when I go and do my gaming, I want an escape. I want excitement. I want to live a movie. I want to live a novel. I want to have an adventure. I want the unknown. So, um, to me, when you when you sit down to play your solitaire game, that's what you want. You're like, it's like you're sitting down in front of the TV, and I'm going to sit down and watch a movie for two hours, and and you know, escape. Except this is a movie or a novel that I'm actually participating in, and I'm creating my own story. Yeah. So that that is something that you know you have to build in character. You know, uh, Dawn of the Zeds was popular. Also, you know, part of it was because the characters were fun. Pickles the dog was a, you know, was a character that people relate to. Sheriff Hunt, you know, uh, Captain Piazza, and in case nobody's noticed, they're all named after New York Mets, but <laughs> that's the point. Um, and, you know, so you know, you get invested in the storyline because you identify with these characters and they all have little, you know, and again, you don't want to make them too complex. You know, there's a lot of games out there, a lot of Euro games and all that, where the characters are just, you know, 15 pages of storyline and characteristics. Right. No, you want a little bit of something to make them each individualistic. Not too much where, you know, you have to study them for three hours before you get to use them. Right. So, again, you know, it's like coming back to a familiar friend. You know, uh, uh, a, a favorite book or a favorite magazine or a favorite movie, and you, you come back and you experience it again. And maybe this time the ending's a little different, or the or the storyline's a little different, or the highlights are a little different, or the lowlights are a little different. Yeah. But I, I think that's part of it too. It's it, it make it attractive, make it juicy, make it uh, a living, breathing thing that you participate with. Yeah, and it like you're saying, it can be a huge challenge because I mean, if, if you're designing a multiplayer game, you can kind of rely on the multiple people there at the table to to help you with some things, to help you, you know, with the verisimilitude, so to speak, to help you know players mm-hmm. really get involved and really get that experience because there's other people there that they're experiencing it with, you know. So even if the game isn't quite as thematic as it could be, well, the people at the table can help it become more thematic. You know, they can say right. different things and do different things. You can play a little music in the background, whatever. But when you have a solo game, it's up to the game to pull that player in. And either the game's going to pull them into the narrative or nothing is. Like, there's no one else at the table that the game can rely on to help them. Right. That's an excellent, that's an excellent point. And you're right. It's, it's more incumbent on the designer to create those, quote-unquote, other people there yeah. with you in the room because you're playing by yourself. So you want to have... Uh, Right. You want to have an interaction, but you have to have the interaction with the game. So you're exactly right. And if you make your characters rich enough and fun enough, you interact with those characters. And in the same way, like I said, like I said, there's this fourth dimension of miniatures where I'm actually interacting with these miniature figures that I've painted and have developed their own characters. The same thing with these games. You know, you, you create your own little world of entertainment and fun and adventure. Yeah. And I know that sounds kind of, that sounds kind of corny, but that's what it is. No, there's absolutely. There's so many... There's so many solitaire games that are just, and I'm not going to name any, but there's some that I've sat down with and just dry and boring, and it's roll a die, look at a table, this happened, and I'm like, oh, okay, now what? Where's the juice? Where's the, and 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 that's you know one thing you, you you try to avoid when you're doing these. Yeah, and this you know this is something I was I was working on an adventure game this a couple weeks ago. 
And it's a co-op game, and so I'm sitting there and I'm playing it by myself, you know, just trying to figure out the mechanics. This is early on. It's kind of like the first or second play test. And my wife came in and she said, hey, oh, it's, your, oh, it's the game you're working on. Is it any good? You know, are you having fun? Do you, are you enjoying this game? And I looked at her and I said, you know, I feel like I'm moving pieces around a board. That's what I mm-hmm. feel like I'm doing. I'm just pushing stuff exactly. around. I'm rolling a die here and there. And even though this game is an adventure game, it's supposed to be super thematic. And on paper, it was. And, it, you know, it was a really good idea in my head. But in reality, I felt like I was just moving, you know, stuff around. And that's mm-hmm. that's not immersive. That's not an experience. And so, yeah, it, it can be a super challenging thing to accomplish. Right. You don't, you, exactly. That's, that's a great way to put it because you, if you make it mechanically easy enough where you're not looking in the rule book constantly and worrying about, you know, this or that mechanic – but you're, you're just getting into the story. I'm like, oh, my God, you know, Sheriff Hunt's got to go here. And, and you're just sending him to his doom, not thinking about, well, I can only move him two or three spaces and I got to look up this rule and this right. exception. You're right. You know, you just you're just playing the game to play the game and to get to get the story going rather than, like you say, just mechanically moving things around. Um, and there, there are so many solitaire games out there that just that, you know, it's uh, here's a whole list of tables and roll a D6 on these tables. And this is what's going to happen. And thinking about you know what you were talking about earlier with with making the game hard. This, I was just reminded I've got a good friend. He's a good old boy from Georgia. And he's got this phrase and he says, well, the juice is worth the squeeze. You know, you want to you want to make a game where the juice is worth the squeeze, and even though you know you got beat up and the game, you know, destroys you and you lost by a lot, you look at it and you go, yeah, but I'm gonna play again because that juice is worth the squeeze. And so I think as designers, that is our goal. We want to make games that people think are worth the squeeze, so to speak. That's great. I like to remember that. I love that. <laughs> yeah, and you live in New York, so if you say something like that, people are gonna really uh, have a have a time with it. Oh that, yeah, I know. Well, I, like I said, I, I'm going to retire to Tennessee. I have to get out. <laughs> have to get out of here. I, I, I like I like that kind of stuff. Man. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's the, the juice is worth the juice squeeze. Is worth I like squeeze. that. Yeah, it's kind of. And this is a total side note. Um, but I remember when he was dating the woman that um, that's now his wife, and uh, there was something that came up, and I remember it was it wasn't anything crazy. It was just kind of you know, just a, a problem. And and I looked at him because it was early on in their relationship, and I said, "Well, man, is that like a deal breaker?" He says, "No, man, juice worth the squeeze." And I think that was the first time I ever heard him say it. Was right in that moment. I was like, "Oh, well, okay." <laughs> you know, and they're married now, and their marriage is awesome. But anyway, oh, that's great. That's uh, great. Getting back on topic, walk me, walk me through your process. Like, help me understand your process of creating one of these games. Now, with Don the Zeds, you know, you started with a system, a system that was already established that you kind of changed and tweaked and made it fit. But is that mm-hmm. how you normally work, or, or you know, how do you normally work, or what's your normal process with these games? Well, for me personally, uh, you know, like I said, I got into this design gig more more to try to do unique stuff that hasn't been done before, and I know a lot of people say that, but I really do try to do that. And I mean, sometimes it doesn't work, and some, but a lot of times it does. You know, you got to take some chances, and so. Yeah, Dawn of the Zeds came from my playing experience with Zula Ram. Then, then I started thinking of like, well, what, what, what else can I do that nobody else will try to do? Yeah. So, I came, like I said, oh my God, there's so many World War One trench battles that nobody will go near because they assume that you know World War One trench warfare is is boring and it's not a game. So I said, well, how can I make that more exciting? So I came up with this push your luck system and. 
it, it developed into from a World War One trench game into uh, we call it the Death or Glory series, where you know you 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 put the player in the position of these historic armies that just had really impossible missions, and you and you you try it. So it became the Pickett's Charge game because nobody else would do a game on Pickett's Charge. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, the system worked. It's, it's very popular because people feel like they have a chance to do it. It's really hard. And, you know, the odds are against them. But God damn it, they can they can do it because of this and that and the other thing. So, you know, you, you build that idea of I want to design something that nobody else has done or wants to do. So, you know, in magnificent style. And then I have one coming out on the Rangers at Point de Hoc, which uh, if you remember, that was a D-Day. And those were the Rangers that scaled up the cliffs to attack the German entrenched positions. Again, a mission that sounds on its face like it's impossible. Right. And um, the other thing was, I got a game coming out on Culp's Hill. Nobody has ever done a game on the Battle of Culp's Hill, despite its importance for the Battle of Gettysburg. Hmm. It was the entire right flank of the Union line, and if it had collapsed, they would have lost the Battle of Gettysburg. Yeah. But nobody does a game on it. Nobody's ever done a game on it because... It was a frontal charge up the side of a hill into entrenchments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, again, while well, there's a challenge for me, I don't know, the heck with that. I'm going to do a game on that. Yeah. And again, you, if you find that one mechanic, in this case, that push your luck mechanic where you just keep rolling the dice and, oh, I moved another space, but when do I stop? Right. So a lot of people compared it to that game can't stop. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where you, you, when do you consolidate your position and stop rolling? And in the so as far as solitaire games, you know, it was like those kinds of situations. Like, what can I do that nobody's ever done before? Doesn't have the guts to do. And then uh, I remember uh, I was doing an interview with somebody, and somebody challenged me to do a game that was based on total chaos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I said, "All right, I'll, I'm up for that challenge. I can make it a, a challenging game based on total." So that's when Invaders from Dimension X came out. For tiny battle games, it's just it, it, it's it's you against the uh, aliens called the Chaos, and they uh, they they you pick chits for them randomly, and they do random things because they're from another dimension, and you don't understand what they're doing, but they're doing it. Yeah. So you have limited resources, you have to deal with it. You know what you know what the base chit pool is like. What are all the things that they will do in a given period of time, but you don't know when they're going to do it. So you have to base your strategy on combating the chaos. So again, another insane idea that nobody would ever do. That that again, I, I just well, I just like doing stuff that's just totally out there and different. Yeah. So um, so that's kind of like my inspiration to do as far as solitaire games is taking really difficult situations and seeing if you can. I, I guess the well, now that I just realized that it, it's it's games that you would not do two player. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Right. You, you wouldn't do Pickett's Charge two player because the Union player wouldn't have much to do right. other than shoot at you. Uh, you know, you wouldn't do uh, a two player total chaos game because the side that has the chaos really has nothing to do but other do chaotic things. Yep. So I guess the point is you have to pick your situations for solitaire games. They have to make sense to be done solitaire. Yeah, that's a great point. Don't don't just take an idea. And then make a solitaire game necessarily. Like it needs to have right. some semblance of, of reason. Like this, oh, this makes sense. Dawn of the Zeds. I mean, I guess somebody could be the zombies, but if you really think about it, that's not how zombies work. Like you shouldn't have a player right. making moves for the zombies that make sense necessarily, because that's not you know it, it doesn't make sense if, in the big big picture. Right. 
And it works because the side you're fighting should be terrifying. Yeah. And they're terrifying because you don't know what they're going to do. Right. And they're deadly. <laughs> <laughs> so, in it, again, I, I, I guess that adds to the whole idea of, of this, you know, the fourth dimension. The, the theme, the storyline is these guys are terrifying because I don't know what they're going to do. So the game has an anxiety level to it. I, I guess that's the point I'm trying to make is that when you're playing solitaire, there has to be a certain anxiety level. Yeah. Whether that anxiety is I'm charging in trench positions or zombies are falling in on me, you have to feel like um, you're always being threatened. Yeah. You know, and your gameplay can alleviate that threat, you know, or remove that threat or ease the, ease the tension. Um, I, I guess that's part of it too. It's, it's, it's playing, playing scared. Right. Now let's, let's talk about that mechanically. Now, how do you do that mechanically in your games to create that tension, create that drama? One of them is, like I said before, is the unknown. Yeah. I, I don't know for sure what the zombies are going to do or the aliens are going to do or where the counterattack is going to come from the Union lines, or when their artillery is going to hit me or not. So you have to... So that's the random aspect of it. So you got to create this random engine that throws stuff at you that you're not going to know when it's coming. But it's, like I told you before, it still has to have an internal logic. So, you know, in the sense of a Civil War game, it has to be a realistic... In other words, if you're playing in magnificent style and historically a counterattack came from the left side where the unit, I forget the unit now, I think it's the 6th Ohio or something like that, attacked from the flank or the Vermont Brigade attacked from the flank, that can happen during the game. You don't know when it's going to happen. Yeah. Right? Or you throw in a random thing in there that could have happened. Or, in other words, so it has... A realistic basis, but you don't know when it's going to happen. So that the key to that is building that into, if you're going to use an event deck, that event deck, like I told you before about, like, say, the Dunkirk game, that event deck has to be set up with historical parameters and realistic things that did happen or could have happened. And generating that is is the key as far as... You don't know when these things are going to happen, but they're going to happen. Yeah. Uh, well, I shouldn't say they're going to happen. You don't know if they're going to happen, but it's a realistic, but you don't know the exact timing of it. Right. So, and in the case of a zombie game, that makes it even scarier is you don't even have those kind of historical constraints. You could just have <laughs> zombies go crazy on one track. And that's the thing about Dawn of the Zeds. You could just get a brains card or two brains cards in a world and zombies will go berserk on one track and just rip through you and end the game like that. Right. And that's the threat. You know, is there a game ending situation that you, you know, you can take uh, reasonable precautions to prevent, but it's still hanging out there. Yeah. <laughs> it's always hanging out there that these guys are going to come out of nowhere or, you know, go through the tunnel or show up here or infect the guy who's defending your key position. So it's it, it, you build it into the cards or the event, you know, whatever you're using, whatever mechanism you're using for the AI, you build it in there, and uh, so it pops out at a, at a at a random time, and the player is just constantly on edge. Yeah, no, that's a great way to great way to do it. Now, do you have any kind of closing advice for anybody who's working on a solo game or, or wanting to? 
Well, other than everything. <laughs> yeah, other than all the other, you know, really yeah. great wisdom and insight. Anything else? I, to be honest with you, I, my, my main thing is just make it fun. Yeah. You know, if the game is not fun, if you're not laughing during the game or, well, crying laughing, True. right? Like I said, if I if you read the storyboards, or if you go to Dawn of the Zeds on Board Game Geek and you read some of the things that people write about it, my favorite posts are the guys who just tell me what happened in the game. They don't talk about the mechanics, the rules, the components. They just write from beginning to end, oh, my God, I saved the day by defending the bridge, and this is what happened. And yeah. they just tell me the story like – you know, and that's what you got to try to do. Make it fun. Make people want to tell somebody else about your game. You know, to explain it to them in a narrative sense, not a mechanical sense. And again, make it make it hard to win. Don't make it too easy to win. Um, make it easy to play. People don't want to work hard when they're playing solitaire. You know, they they want to. They want to have fun. They want to get the game moving along. They want it uh, uh, accessible. Um, I, and I know that all that stuff, it, it, it's hard to do, and, and I'm not saying it's easy to do, but if you want to make a, a solitaire game that, that people are going to be interested in and want to play, that you got to do that. Don't, don't, you know, don't put a hundred charts in there with, you know, two D6 die rolls to determine everything. Um, you can build heart and soul into your game if, if you really think about it and, and, and you put your own heart and soul into it. Yeah, Definitely. Well, Herman, man, really appreciate your insight, the wisdom, all oh. the just really good stuff. We're actually about to head over to into a bonus round. We're going to talk about zombie games and how to create a, a zombie game that stands out from the crowd. There's so many zombie games out there now. How do you create one that actually stands out where people will, will take notice of it? So we're going to do that in the bonus round. But, Herman, you know, appreciate you coming on the show, and good luck with all the projects you got going on right now. Thank you, Gabe. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and your listeners. Thanks for listening. Find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at BoardGameDesignLab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?